Welcome to Bent on Education podcast, a podcast focusing on evidence-based review of physiology, pharmacology, pathophysiology, and other anesthesia-related topics. I'll discuss being a clinical preceptor, a mentor, and a leader. This podcast is by CRNA for SRNAs and others seeking to build their basic knowledge base. So let's get bent on education. Hi, all you podcasters. It's so good to be back. It's been way too long, and I apologize. There's been so much going on, but no excuses, right? Um, So I decided that I was going to start a series called The Top of the Drawer. And in anesthesia specifically, and this is going to be really helpful for any nurses going into any unit, ICU, emergency room, uh, any kind of your recovery rooms on the floor, med surge, any unit possible. But this series, when we say top of the drawer in anesthesia, is all the medication that's right at the tip of our hands. And even though on occasion you may need to get them from a Pixis system or OmniCell, the medication is readily available for anyone to use. So that's hence why we call it the top of the drawer. So with that, um, I will talk about classes of medication, but as we get into the nitty-gritty and meds that are used more frequently fentanyl, morphine, for example, I'll talk in detail of each of those rather than just the global uh, overarching opioid um, topic. The first one we're going to start talking about is our barbiturates. And those of you who have been in anesthesia long enough, remember thiopental. What a beautiful drug it was, right? There are some aspects of it that we didn't really appreciate that kind of drunken feeling when patients went home, which was where the whole do not operate heavy equipment, do not drive because it had a redistribution effect. But in the United States, if you all remember, we stopped making it here in 2011. Hospira was the pharmaceutical company that made um, thiopental and They could not get guarantees that it wasn't going to be used for euthanasia for uh, adult people, specifically those on death row and things like that. We're not going to get into the politics of all that, but that's the reason why we do not have thiopental here in the United States. There are other barbiturates that we do use, methohexetol, for example. So we're going to just overarchingly discuss barbiturates in general. Remember that the mechanism of action for our barbiturates is that it depresses the RAS or the reticular activating system in the brainstem. This is that part of the brain that controls consciousness. So if we're depressing that, obviously we are going to depress the level of consciousness that a patient has. The primary mechanism of action is believed to... um, work where your barbiturates bind to your GABA receptor. You're going to hear that term GABA receptor when we talk about a lot of different medication because that is where the mechanism of action is, obviously. Barbiturates tend to potentiate the action of GABA and that it increases the duration of the opening of the chloride channels or those chloride ion channels. Without getting too much in the weeds of the structural activity of our our barbiturates, remember that they're derived from barbituric acid. And when you're looking at the chemical structure of your barbiturates, 
there's a substitution at carbon C5, which determines the hypnotic potency and the anticonvulsant activity of our barbiturates. Um, I mentioned a couple, methahexatol, penobarbital, phenobarbital, those are all in the classification of barbiturates that um, potentially are still used here and that you may even use them on your units if you're working as a, as an, a nurse in the units outside of the operating room. If you were to, again, look at that chemical structure, you would see that with phenobarbital, for example, there's a phenyl group, which makes sense. That's part of the name. And the phenyl group is what makes phenobarbital an excellent anticonvulsant. If you think outside of the box a little bit, you'll understand that methahexatol has a methyl group. And with that methyl group, it is not a very good anticonvulsant. So we do use methahexatol for giving anesthesia for cases, i.e., electroconvulsive therapy, when a seizure is desired. We want to produce a seizure so that uh, the physician or the neurophysician understands where the seizure um, mechanism is coming from within somebody's brain. So we're not going to get into the weeds of the chemical structure and the structural relationship, but that's like one of the biggest differences between methahexatol and uh, phenobarbital, for example. As we dive a little bit into the pharmacokinetics of the medication, remember your pharmacokinetics includes um, absorption, distribution, your biotransformation, and the excretion of the medication. Biotransformation and metabolism go hand in hand. It's the same thing, just saying it two different ways. So when we look at your uh, pharmacokinetics of your barbiturates, and specifically absorption, we're giving most of these medications other than uh, rectal methohexatol, we're giving most of these medications via the IV route. So there's going to be 100% absorption um, for any of these IV medications. Rectal methohexatol has been used for the induction of anesthesia in children. We don't do that much in pediatric anesthesia. As a matter of fact, I've been a pediatric anesthetist for 17 years and I have never seen a methahexatol, a rectal methahexatol induction for kids. When we talk about the distribution of this medication, remember the duration of the induction dose of uh, any of your medications are determined by the redistribution and not the metabolism or the elimination of that drug. Um, there are some that are more lipid soluble. So thiopental had a very, you know, it was very lipid soluble and highly unionized, which accounted for the rapid uptake in the brain of that medication. You could have given thiopental and within 30 seconds or less, your patient would be asleep. There are a few other key components when we consider the metabolism of our barbiturates. And so how does it, you know, eliminate itself from the um, hypnotic effect? In other words, how does a patient recover from a barbiturate is that 
when it redistributes away from our central nervous system and those active tissues in our central nervous system, this accounts for the awakening effect. So when our patient will wake up, even though hepatic dysfunction may slow the redistribution of the medication, significant dysfunction has to be there in order for the medication to have a prolonged duration of action. So just because your patient may have some hepatic dysfunction doesn't mean that they're going to stay asleep longer than average. Um, Other aspects of excretion that I just want to make sure that I clarified is that even though all of our barbiturates are filtered by your renal glomeruli, they have a high degree of protein binding as well. So this high degree of protein binding actually allows for a lot of reabsorption with less than 1% of the administered dose. Let's talk about some of the clinical uses of our barbiturates. Barbiturates. Depends on what school of thought you're from. Anyway, barbiturates are used for their hypnotic properties, and they're typically really good for the induction of general anesthesia. Other treatment uses, you might see them on your ICUs um, for, you know, taking care of patients who have elevated intracranial pressures. You want to bring those down. Patients that have uh, seizure disorders or they're in status uh, epilepticus and they're constantly seizing, we want to make sure that you give them a medication that will slow down, if not halt, the seizure activity, and barbiturates are really good for that. They don't have analgesic properties. So if you're giving a patient a barbiturate and they also have a pain medication requirement, know that you're going to have to supplement with something specific for for pain because they don't have any analgesic properties. And it's actually thought, uh, previous research, that they can lower the pain threshold and produce a state of anti-analgesia. So you have to be very careful that just because your patient is asleep uh, does not mean that they're not experiencing pain. Just like most of the medication that we use in anesthesia, induction of anesthesia with your barbiturates does give you a dose-dependent reduction in your blood pressure, more specifically your systemic blood pressure along with an elevated heart rate. So you want to just be careful and watch for those things if your patient's condition does not um, is not reliably uh, treated with a barbiturate. Anytime your patient has a reduction in their arterial pressure and it's related to a reduction in their output from their medullary um, vasomotor centers, this can lead to vasodilation of your peripheral vessels and subsequently a reduction in your venous return to the right atrium. So is uh, barbiturate medication good for those with significant cardiac disease? Some would venture to say that it is not. Those who are in the school of thought that, yes, it's a decent medication for people with cardiovascular disease is because, uh, you know, when you're looking at these changes that can happen cardiovascularly with your barbiturates, your cardiac output is usually maintained, and this is because of an increase in your myocardial contractility. You may ask yourself, why do I have an increase in my myocardial contractility? Remember that the heart has your compensatory baroreceptor reflex, and that's specifically why. Even though this is present in most patients, you want to be very cautious when you have patients who do not have that 
compensatory baroreceptor response. Um, what patients or what patient population is this seen in? Usually in those who are hypovolemic, for example, patients who have congestive heart failure, because there may be like huge reductions in both their arterial blood pressure and their cardiac output, because now, um, if you think about it from a physiologic standpoint, they have that unopposed peripheral vasodilation. Patients who are chronically hypertensive or poorly controlled, they may experience super wide swings in their arterial blood pressure during induction. Uh, so you want to make sure that when you're dosing any kind of barbiturate for a patient that you reduce your dosage. One of the things that I always say, and my students can uh, attest to this, is that less is more. You can always give a patient more, but you can never take away what you've given them. Another aspect of giving patients barbiturates is that you want to make sure that your patient does not have a disorder called porphyria. I remember in school, I would always pronounce it porphyria, but that's not it. It's a porphyria. And porphyria refers to a group of disorders that results from a buildup of your natural chemicals that produce porphyrin in your body. So porphyrins are really essential for the function of your hemoglobin. And when a patient has an issue or high levels of porphyrins, this can cause significant problems for the patient. If a patient has porphyria, barbiturates are not their friend. So just remember that. Let's talk about how our barbiturates um, affect the respiratory center. Um, they depress the medullary ventilatory center, right? So with this, there is a decrease in the patient's ventilatory response to hypercapnia and hypoxia. So if you have a patient and they are hypercapnic, so their end tidal CO2 is elevated or their pulse ox is uh, decreased and you give them a barbiturate, guess what? They're not going to respond to that decrease in your end tidal and or your pulse ox like the brain normally would. Apnea, so for those of you who are in anesthesia, apnea typically follows the induction of any anesthetic. And apnea often follows an induction dose of any barbiturate that you give a patient. When a patient is starting to wake up or they're starting to be responsive from a barbiturate, their tidal volume and their respiratory rate are still decreased. So you have to wait for those increases to make sure if the patient's intubated that it's safe or if you're doing sedation with a barbiturate that you um, monitor that patient so that you know when it's okay to like ease up a little bit on your vital signs and on your monitoring techniques and modalities for that patient. One thing to keep in mind, especially for those of us who are in anesthesia, is that if you give a patient a barbiturate, it does not depress the airway reflex response to laryngoscopy. Laryngoscopy is when we stick that metal blade in a patient's throat, for those of you who are not in anesthesia. And so when we do that and we've given a patient a barbiturate, it does not completely abolish the airway ref reflex response to laryngoscopy. If my patient still has airway reflexes, I can actually attribute to a bronchospasm, specifically in those patients who already have some sort of, um, you know, response to stimulation, patients who are asthmatics, those who have a reactive airway, for example. Let's talk a little bit about how our barbiturates affect our central nervous system. Um, when you're looking at how they act on your cerebral vasculature, for example, 
they constrict your cerebral vasculature. When your cerebral vasculature is constricted, this causes a decrease in your cerebral blood flow, which makes sense. It causes a decrease in your cerebral blood volume and your intracranial pressure, which is great because a lot of the reasons why our partners in the ICU, for example, use barbiturates is because they have a patient who has a space-occupying lesion or some brain irritation, which is making their intracranial pressure go up, and they want to keep that intracranial pressure down. Your intracranial pressure decreases to a greater extent than your arterial blood pressure, so your cerebral perfusion pressure usually increases as well. Our barbiturates induce a greater decline in our cerebral oxygen consumption um, than it does with our cerebral blood flow. So that's not a bad thing. It's not detrimental to your um, brain function at all. Barbiturates also reduce the oxygen requirement and cerebral metabolic activity. And you can see this for those of you who are in neuro or those of you who have seen somatosensory evoked potentials where you see the EEG tracing, for example, your um, electroencephalogram tracing, you're going to see where there's a progression from that low voltage fast activity with small doses, and it progresses to a high voltage slow activity and subsequently burst um, suppression. Those of you who are in my class, um, even though it wasn't because I gave a barbiturate, it was propofol-induced burst suppression. I have a great story about that. A little too intense and too long to describe um, on a podcast. So we're going to keep moving forward. The nice thing about our barbiturates is that they can protect the brain from transient episodes of focal ischemia. Unfortunately, when you look at global ischemia, as in cardiac arrest or circumstances um, of that nature, they probably don't do a very good job of protecting the brain um, in, in, in that you know environment. There's been a lot of data that supports uh, these effects, you know, the local focal ischemia versus the global ischemia. So just something to look forward to and look at when you are reviewing information. So coming on the tail end, how do barbiturates affect your renal system or your kidneys? Barbiturates do reduce your renal blood flow and your glomerular filtration rate or your GFR. To what degree do they decrease those two things? Very proportionate to your reduction in your blood pressure. So if your blood pressure has a significant drop, as will your GFR and your renal blood flow. When we look at, for example, and we'll just circle around a little bit, we talked about porphyria when it comes to your liver, but your barbiturates also decrease your hepatic blood flow too. Anytime you have a chronic exposure to barbiturates, this can lead to an induction of your hepatic enzyme system or your cytochrome P450 system. What you need to be careful of in this respect is that they, you know, it binds to your cytochrome P450 system and can interfere with biotransformation of other drugs that uh, bind to your cytochrome P450 system as well. Specifically, your tricyclic antidepressants. So Elevil um, is one of them that I can think of off the top of my head. And also nortriptyline, but I can't be 100% sure that that's still being used. From an immunological standpoint, anaphylactic and anaphylactoid reactions are very rare with your barbiturates. 
Um, any of your sulfa-containing thiobarbiturates can have a mast cell histamine release, whereas your oxybarbiturates do not. So that's a good thing about your oxybarbiturates. When we look at drug interactions, one thing you should know is that any kind of like contrast media, any kind of sulfonamides or other drugs that occupy the same protein binding sites may actually displace your thiopental. And when we displace the thiopental, obviously you just have more free drug running around to have more effects than you maybe anticipated with the dose that you gave to your patient. When you are considering um, drugs like opioids and antihistamines and giving those together with your barbiturates, know that they will potentiate the sedative effect of our um, barbiturates. So you want to be very careful, especially if you're doing a sedation case. You don't want to give too much of one and not give enough time for that to circulate and see what effects it's going to have on your patient. So that's it for our barbiturates, barbiturates in 20 minutes or less, or right at 20 minutes, I guess. Um, I hope I gave you information that you need that's necessary for you to study and get to know this drug class pretty well. Uh, next week, we're going to touch into our benzodiazepines. Until then, get bent on education. 